I want to uh, start to talk to you uh, about what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. And Jason had mentioned as a part of his announcements that we're going to have a baptism service on the 14th. And <clears throat> that's right before Easter. And around here, if you've never been here for a baptism Sunday, it's a celebration. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's a family event, really. And we take the whole service to do baptism. And uh, so if that's something you're considering doing, uh, I would encourage you to do so. This is the time of the year where we start to focus in on uh, Easter. And I want to take, I'll be speaking this week and next week. uh, Tyler Redden will be sharing with us a few weeks after that before we go into that baptism service. And then, of course, we'll have our Easter service. But really, this is the time of the year where the story of Easter, when we look at it, it's, it's the core of our message. That one moment in time where Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, our entire message surrounds that moment. Everything that we do as a church and that we preach as a body of Christ and the things, you know, why do we gather together? Because that happened. All those years ago, God became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And then he gave up his life on our behalf. And then he rose from the dead, plowing the way for you and I also to have eternal life. And it's important that we take some time to, to look at that. I, uh, there's just a number of things that are fascinating when you start looking at that final week of Jesus' life. Uh, I was, this last week I went through and I was just counting how many chapters in the Gospels just pertain to that last week of Jesus' life. It's like 26 chapters, just the last week of Jesus' life. And there's a number of major events there. There's so many prophecies that are fulfilled. There's so much of of the Jewish process that was uh, fulfilled that week. And we're going to look at some of those things. And obviously, in three or four messages, you're not going to cover everything that happened that week. But we're going to look at a few main events. And um, I think it can be really helpful. I'm a bit of a nerd, as you know. And, uh, yeah, let's hear it for the nerds, right? And when you start to look at that week and you start to dig into some of the events and whatnot, it can be a lot of fun, but the history is fun, too. What was going on in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' crucifixion uh, is pretty interesting. You have to understand, you know, we have characters like Pilate, Pontius Pilate that we talk about, characters like Herod, and they're about the only time we hear of these guys. But they were major players in the political environment of the time. There was an atmosphere of unrest. You know, the Jews didn't do well under the rule of foreign governments, like most people probably don't. And they frequently had rebellions. They had uprisings. At this time, when Jesus was crucified, obviously, as most of us understand, the Romans were ruling in Jerusalem. And they were always looking for a Messiah, a Savior. And all of this political, politically charged atmosphere was causing people to, you know, when they look for the Messiah, to look for someone that would establish a government that would restore the throne of David they were waiting for. You know, King David in the Old Testament, he was the second king of Israel. There was three kings in a row while the kingdom was united. And under David, they looked back at those days like the glory days of Israel. And they were waiting for that throne to be restored. And so they were waiting for someone who was going to throw the Romans out. Someone who was going to overturn the corruption of the Herods and what was going on in the world. 
The Jews are very nationalistic, and that colored their view of who the Christ would be. The week that Jesus was crucified, they were starting to celebrate Passover. We've covered this a little bit at times in different ways. Uh, it's, it's interesting to me, and so it finds its way into our messages. But Passover is what's going on in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Probably the most significant uh, gathering of the Jews. They had a number of feasts, and, but, but Passover was arguably the most significant one. And so you have to realize that in Jerusalem at this time, they had probably any you know, estimates of like 300 to 400,000 pilgrims in the city. I want you to imagine for a second if three or 400,000 people showed up in Helena. Make the legislature look like nothing. So it is busy. It's chaotic. They actually, the Romans would, you know, Pilate made sure that he was in Jerusalem while this was going on because this is one of those moments in history where a rebellion could rise up amongst the people. They're all gathered in one place, a huge amount of them. So there were soldiers. There were authorities of the Roman Empire there. It was a charged environment in a variety of ways. It was politically charged. It was religiously charged. You've got these two factions of the Jews, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees really kind of this more conservative, if you would, could put it that way, group of Jews. But they weren't in power. The Sadducees are where they were in control in terms of the government. They were more oriented towards Greek thinking and processes. It was a crazy time. This is a week. You could argue this was the most pivotal week in human history. And certainly that is true for Christians. Thus far in the history of humans, this was a significant week. Something that the Jews did on Passover. <clears throat> so what Passover was, is you remember the story of the Israelites being captive by the and enslaved, actually they moved there freely, they were free when they got there, but eventually they became slaves of the Egyptians. And God sends his man Moses to deliver the people from Egypt. And Pharaoh doesn't want to let them go. So God sends these plagues, plague after plague after plague. Horrible things. Actually, there's something interesting about this story I want to bring to your attention because it pertains to our story of Jesus as well. When Moses was a baby... Pharaoh ordered that all the male babies be killed of the Hebrews, all of them. And Moses' mother sneaks him away in a basket, and one of Pharaoh's daughters adopts him, and he becomes part of the royal house in Egypt. So God saved one because he had a plan for him to deliver his people. But at the end of those plagues, Pharaoh wouldn't listen. So God, said, God busts out the big guns. He's going to do something serious now. He says, I want you to choose a lamb without spot or blemish. And I want you to sacrifice it. I want you to take its blood and I want you to mark the door of your house with this blood of this spotless lamb. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to send an angel of death through Egypt. And any place I don't find this blood... I'm going to take the firstborn. So there's a correlation to uh, Pharaoh slaughtering a bunch of young boys. You can also see the foreshadowing of Christ in this. And the angel of death grows through, and it's just a tragic time for the Egyptians. 
And so he agrees to let the, Egypt, the Hebrews go, and they become free. And the Jews went on to celebrate that. God instituted a holiday there called Passover. The angel passed over them, bypassed them. Though they, were going, they should have died based on what he was going to do, he made a way for them to live through the shed blood of a perfect lamb. So what was going on in Jerusalem at this time was all the Jews were migrating to the temple. The temple wasn't built for hundreds of years after the law was given. But they're all coming to the temple in Jerusalem to do this Passover. And one of the things they did on the 10th of the month, and this, you'll find this in the Jewish law, it was the first month of the year. The 10th of that month was the day they selected a lamb. And they would select this lamb, and this lamb would come and live with them till the 14th. And in that process, it became your lamb. So what they do is they take this lamb in for these days, and they would examine it for whether or not it was, there was a blemish or anything wrong with it. And it was no longer the lamb, but this language of it became your lamb. And then when the 14th rolled around, right at twilight, right at the changing of the days, they would sacrifice the lambs. Well, early in the week, uh, Jesus is, you know, the very first, the start of this week. And, you know, when you read the Gospels and you read historians, there is some things that they debate about which day what happened, kind of the order of things. Some of the Gospels record that when Jesus came in on the triumphal entry, he came in on the 10th, the day when the lambs were being selected. I want to look at that story again in Mark chapter 11 and remind you of what happens. And it's what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So starting out this week, leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, obviously you can see the irony here, that he's coming into Jerusalem, he's being hailed as the king, he's being praised, he's being accepted. Hard to believe that in just a few days they'd be crucifying him. But it's interesting because this correlates with the Jewish process as well, of selecting the lamb, finding the lamb without blemish, and making it their own. 
you'll see this kind of thing repeated over and over throughout Jesus' life where he fulfills prophecy. Even him coming into Jerusalem that day, he fulfills a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. This is a huge week for the Jews. And all week long, Jesus is, you know, he's being tested. He's being challenged. His authority is being challenged. He's telling these parables. When you go through and you read about that week, it's the same process that the Jews were doing with the lamb at the time in the house, making sure it was without blemish, making sure it was a sufficient sacrifice. And in a similar way, the Jews were challenging Jesus all week long. By what authority do you do this? Challenging who he was. And he has some of his most amazing parables and things that he teaches in this time. Because he's leading up to the sacrifice. The story I really want to focus on today, and is the main content for me, is the, what we call the cleansing of the temple. And we know that Jesus, after this triumphal entry, he comes in and he says he looks around the temple and then he goes out. And the next day, he comes in. And I'm going to start, I'm going to read in in verse 15 of Mark chapter 11, just to stay in the same book. He comes into town, and um, before we read the story, I want to try and convince you of how important the temple was to the Jews. So back in the day when they left Egypt, the presence of God would come and they they had a tabernacle, they called it. And they had built the Ark of the Covenant, you know, this large gold chest, if you will, with two cherubim on the top of it. And it represented the presence of God, that God was with us. As long as they had that Ark with them, God was with them. God, he's so good, He, he takes us on processes where he starts to introduce himself in ways we can understand. And he takes us on a journey of understanding him more and more and more. And in those days, we all know God is omnipresent. He isn't confined to sitting on top of a golden box, but that he's everywhere. But he's starting to introduce himself to his people, so they start to understand who he is. And so he occupies a location, and that location was in the tabernacle. The presence of God was there. And even with the Egyptians, there'd be a cloud. He would manifest himself so that they would understand that their God was with them. He would be in the cloud. He would be in the pillar of fire at night leading them. He always made his presence known to his people. And eventually, David's son Solomon builds a temple, a place, a house for God, if you will, a place for him to reside, as if he needs a house. But And Solomon knew that and understood that. But still, he built this house of worship, a place where all these rituals, these sacrifices, the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, the curtain in the temple that separated the presence of God from the people, all these things are in this temple. It was the center of Jewish life. It's why all of these hundreds of thousands of people would congregate into Jerusalem during the Passover and other feasts because the temple was there. That was where God lived. Even though he was in the highest of the heavens, as Solomon said, he still the temple was the place where they went to sacrifice, to worship God, to be before God. 
The first temple was destroyed by the nation of Babylon. And it was in ruins for many years. And the Jews finally come out of Babylonian exile and they, they build a temple again. It's not quite up to snuff with the first one. They're not that thrilled with it. In fact, it says some of the people even mourned that it wasn't quite what the first temple was. But they had a temple. You can read about that in the later books of the Old Testament. Herod the Great. Herod was, you know, you, you read about King Herod and things like that in Jesus' time. There were two of them. And Herod the Great was, he was called a tetrarch. He was like a monarch puppet for Rome who was ruling over the Jews. And, of course, you know the Christmas story. These wise men come from the east to see this baby king that has been born. Prophecies are being fulfilled. Herod freaks out. Herod the Great. And he does something we saw back in the days of the Egyptians as well. And he has every little boy killed. Two years and under, under, I think. Slaughtered. And an angel comes to Joseph in a dream because Jesus is just a baby at this time. And they flee to Egypt. Kind of sounds like Moses' story a little bit too, doesn't it? God was raising up a savior for his people. And many were being killed trying to prevent that from happening. Yet God preserved Jesus, saved his life. But Herod the Great, he had taken the temple and he had added a bunch to it. Some people, you know, he, had, he built this big platform. It was like 35 acres. That's huge. He had expanded it a great deal. But the important thing to remember is that it was the center of worship for the Jews. It was a place where they, they were going. It was the most important relic, if you will. It was like the symbol of their faith. And it was a place where God resided. Mark 11, chapter 15. We just saw Jesus had the triumphal entry. He looks around the temple. Comes back the next day. Picking up in verse 15. It says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them. Sounds like an interesting lesson. And saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when, they came, and when evening came, they went out of the city. So what's going on here in the temple that Jesus is observing? Okay, I just got done talking about the temple. It's a place where sacrifices are taking place. What happened in those days is you're operating with a Roman currency. And to the Jews, that would be, there was, they had this thing called the temple tax that had been instituted. But there's no way they could use Roman currency to do that. They needed the original weight and measurement that the Jews used. And so they would bring their Roman currency and they would exchange it for the Jewish currency so that they could pay the temple tax and it would still be holy to God, basically. But as you can imagine, with the money exchange, it started to turn into some, some level of uh, ill gain. They were charging 
exorbitant prices. They were taking advantage of people. They were charging large amounts of money because they don't have a choice. They need to do this as a part of their worship to God, and so they're forcing them to pay bad rates or high exchange rates, however you want to put it, in exchange for the currency. Jesus didn't like that. Actually, Jesus cleansed the temple two different times. In the book of John, he records that right when Jesus' ministry began, he went to the temple and did the same thing. They had a little different response that time. And he made a whip in that story. You may have heard that. John talks about that story. The temple guard confront him. It's a little different circumstance, but similar reasoning. He looks around and he does not like what he's seeing going on in the temple. They were taking advantage of people. The other thing is, you know, it says, it talks about the pigeons. What in the world are the pigeons all about? Well, there's a number of different, there's lots of complex sacrificing going on for the Jews. And sometimes in the law it was written that if you couldn't afford the actual sacrifice, the poor people could purchase lesser animals, if you will. And pigeons were one of them. Actually, for, for women, after childbirth, it was one of the sacrifices that they used. But oftentimes, God provided a way out for the poor people who couldn't afford an ox or a sheep or something, a goat. And so, again, same scenario. They're selling these animals in the temple. They're taking advantage of the people. God had designed a system to help the poor participate in the sacrifice, and they were abusing it. And it didn't make Jesus happy. But we also see something about this. He, he talks about the nature of, the, of what the temple would be, a house of prayer. This is something holy. This is something for God. And you're making it a den of robbers. You're taking advantage of people with this. He was not okay with it. And he drove them out of the temple. I saw one time, you know, there's, there's lots of cheesy Christian films out there, right? We're all familiar with many of them. One of them I watched one time, and it talks about the scene, and, and Jesus kind of walks over to this table, and he kind of goes, eh, and tips it over. And I'm like, come on. I don't think, that's not zeal. You know, in the book of John, in the, when he drives them out of the temple, the disciples remember a quotation, a scripture. Zeal for my father's house consumes me. He had zeal. He was not going to be okay with the abuse going on in the house, if you will, of God. There's another thing that this correlates to when we talk about Easter. Part of the Passover process, I mean, you, you, if you're familiar with the story, later in the week, uh, Jesus tells his disciples to go and prepare this room for Passover. It's eventually where we look at the Last Supper. And where our concept of communion comes from. But, you know, being uh, not familiar with Jewish customs, when we say go prepare for the Passover, we think they're probably going and cooking a turkey or something, right? They're starting to prepare the food. And yeah, that's part of it. But there was one major thing they had to do in order to celebrate the Passover. They took, because as soon as the Passover was finished, they started the the, um, unleavened bread, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And what they would do is they would go through the house and they'd take every uh, food item, anything that had leaven in it, they got rid of it out of the house, and then they would sweep the house so that there was no leaven. 
And the, in this demonstration, it talks about, you know, the idea being that leaven is sin. And it, and it was going to be removed from the house. He didn't want any, God didn't want any of that going on. This is part of the ceremony of the Jews. It's given to them in the law. And so they'd go through and they'd sweep it clean so there'd be no sin in there. And in the same way, we see what's Jesus doing. He's cleaning the house. He's ridding it of things that he doesn't want going on in the worship of God. Of course, after he drives these people out of the temple, he won't let them carry stuff through. He's not happy with the exchange of things going on in the temple. His, they're starting to leave, and um, it records uh, in Mark chapter 13 that as they're leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Teacher, look at the magnificent stones and buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? And it was something to behold, I'm sure. But Jesus replied, Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be toppled. Of course, that was a disturbing thing. When Jesus said in in the Gospel of John, when he talks about the cleansing of the temple, he says, tear this temple down, and in three days I'll rebuild it. It took 46 years to build this temple. Not rebuilding it in three days. They didn't like Jesus very much. The temple was significant, but Jesus is starting to demonstrate something. He's starting to allude to an idea. And that bothered the disciples. So they come to him in the next verse, on, you know, they, what we call the Olivet Discourse. I love how we just add these ridiculously theological titles to very simple things. He had a conversation with them on the Mount of Olives. And they come to him and they say, when's this stuff going to happen? I had to bother them because this was the center of the Jewish world. What do you mean all these stones are going to be thrown down? There'll be nothing left. And Jesus goes and he starts to talk. And he, he, there's, there's a lot of stuff in the Olivet Discourse. I'm not going to get into a ton of it about what he says. But it's important for us to realize that it happened. Because he's starting. what prompted it is this idea that the stones of the temple would not stand. The temple would not continue to exist. And in there, he starts to talk about the future. and He talks about the destruction of the temple, but there's a bunch of other things. He talks about a thing called the abomination of desolation. He talks about the return, his own return. He talks about famines and earthquakes and all kinds of things in there. And one of the things we need to understand about the Scripture, and we see this a number of times, is that the Word of God is... It's so much more than just text. It is the breath of God. It's words that have come from Him. And even in creation, when we look at creation, it doesn't just tell us the story of creation. It tells us a lot of things. Things that were at the time. Things that were to come. We see the foreshadowing of Christ in creation. We see reconciliation in creation. We see that one day we will walk with our Creator like that again. We see lots of things in, in, in the creation story. And there's layer upon layer upon layer of truth in the Word of God. Even in the prophecies. One day Jesus sat in the synagogue and He reads a prophecy to them. And He says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. But He didn't read the whole thing. You know, He's talking about proclaiming freedom for the captives. 
And he goes on about that, and then he leaves out the last line which says, and the day of vengeance of our God in that prophecy. So when, what I'm getting at is when you're reading the Scripture, you've got to understand that sometimes things are fulfilled multiple times in multiple ways. That's how complex the Word of God is. Some of these prophecies that we saw fulfilled in Christ, we also will see fulfilled in the end of time. It's not something you can just go, okay, that's done, check it off the box. It's timeless, the Word of God is. It matters no matter what point in time you're in. And it means a variety of things in a variety of circumstances. And so when Jesus is talking about this Olivet Discourse, sometimes people will talk about, well, the temple was destroyed around 70 A.D. by the Romans, so it was fulfilled. That part of it was fulfilled. It was and it will be. There's things that we see that were true and will still be true. In the book of Daniel, we see a lot of prophecies that we can say were fulfilled by the events of the times and in the centuries that came after, but also we're still looking to for fulfillment in the end of time as well. God's Word is deep. It's complex. It's multi-layered. That's why we need the Spirit of God. That's why we can't just read it like text and study it like we're scholarly and we're going to solve it. Even when you're sitting in your quiet time in the morning, a verse that you've read a hundred times all of a sudden comes alive and means something for you right in that moment of that day. That's how amazing God's Word is. Even the issues with the temple, the sacrifices, what the temple was, what it meant to the people, all is foreshadowing for us today. It wasn't just something that, okay, once the sacrifices were over and the temple was destroyed, moving, moving along. Yes, we don't operate under the old covenant anymore, but all of those things foreshadow an understanding for us about who we are today and who God is. It's your and my duty both when we read the scripture to mine out things, to excavate the word, to seek to understand, to gain wisdom. But we must do so with the understanding that you're not reading your sophomore world history textbook. You're reading something much more deep and much more multi-layered. And all of these things, so why does it matter that we have the sacrifice in creation we have Abraham sacrificing his son. We have all of these sacrifices of the law. Why do those things matter when it comes to Christ? All, this, all of this in pointing to Christ builds our faith. We're not just telling a story of a one moment in time thing. We're talking about fulfillment of thousands of years of process. It gives a huge amount of validity to the story of Jesus and what he did. And is encouraging to us, but it also helps us, helps us understand the nature of God. It's true that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD or around there by the Romans. They came in, of course, the Jews continued to revolt against the Roman authority. They came in and they wiped out the temple. They set up worship of their own gods in places around there. And ever since then, that whole area of the world, that that little area where the temple supposedly was, has been fought over by nations. There's been re various religious uh, temples, if you will, set up in that area, and it still is a continuing source of conflict for the Arabs and the Jews today. It's where the Dome of the Rock is, right in that area. It mattered to the people. But Jesus changed the game. What Jesus did was so important. 
There's a story where Jesus meets a woman at a well, Samaritan woman, by the way, who the Jews did not associate with, although they theoretically worshiped the same God. They did so differently. And Jesus meets this woman at the well, and he's having a conversation with her. She realizes that he's no ordinary man. And she starts to kind of, she pokes at the controversy between the Jews and the Samaritans at the time. And, and she says, well, you Jews say that we should worship in the temple, but we worship on the mountain. And Jesus answers her in an interesting way. He says, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Blew her whole paradigm apart. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. See, Jesus shifted things from the external appearance of worship to an internal thing. He shifts from the idea that the location matters, and he starts to talk about the spirit matters, the truth matters. And really, we see this all throughout Jesus' teaching. He, he starts to push back on the idea that we just look like something and we just behave a certain way, but that actually the inner man in us, that our soul itself, would actually worship God, that we would be genuine in our motivations, that we would be pure of heart as we worship Him. And that was more important than the location. And that's what He's starting to institute for the body of Christ. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The whole book of Hebrews is addressing this issue. Because the Jews who became believers had such a hard time with the idea of leaving a lot of these practices behind. And that this message of Christ was so transformational, it totally shifted gears. And of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul reveals to us, verse 16 and 17, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. All right, I want you to picture this for a minute. Think about this. The magnificent buildings the disciples talked about, the center of worship for however many hundreds of years. The most important thing to that group of people was this temple. Is it possible that you are that important? That who you are is that important to God? If God chose to destroy the natural temple and make you his home, how important does that make you? How important does that make your temple, your inner space, the soul inside of you that houses the spirit of the living God? 
Man, we ooh and ah about the holy of holies and the, the curtain in the temple tearing in half and all that is truly amazing. But that same powerful presence that dwelt in there dwells in God's people. You are the temple. This was such a profound component of Jesus' ministry that we don't appreciate today because we're not coming out of Judaism. But all of the correlations, all the parallels, all the metaphors, the analogies, all the ways of him describing and leading us in an understanding of what God really wanted from us is amazing to realize you are that temple. There are wars over this territory. Just like there's been wars since the beginning of time over this one little chunk of land, there's, been a, there's a war going on always for your temple, for your holy ground. Jesus was zealous for the purity of the temple. But I want to say it was almost him teaching you how zealous he would be for you. How zealous was he for you? To come and make his home with you? To make you the place that houses his spirit? So much so that he became that lamb. He laid down his life and shed his blood that he could dwell with you. And that you would become his temple. Zeal for my father's house consumes me. That's not just the physical temple. That's you. His zeal for you. We sang that song this morning, and I don't know about you, I get uncomfortable with those songs sometimes where it's like, there's no mountain you wouldn't climb up, no something, something, et cetera, et cetera, right? (laughs) It's the reason I don't write music. (laughs) We love you, Jesus, et cetera, et cetera. We kind of get uncomfortable with the idea that um, God would love us that much. Or, and yeah, I don't, I don't like the self-focused stuff all that much sometimes. Because it's like, who am I? I'm just, eh, I'm not sure Jesus would, eh, not that valuable. I'm expendable. Zeal, his zeal for you, his temple, consumed him to the point of death. Laying down his life starts to cause us to think about the real nature of idolatry. It's one of the things we read about in the Jewish history. They made gods for themselves. They'd carve them out of wood. They'd make them out of gold. They'd carve them out of stone. And then they would worship them as though they were gods. Now, in our day and time, we kind of don't, it's like, what's the matter with these people? God did all this amazing supernatural stuff. They just, they just have a tendency to do that. And sometimes we might get frustrated when we read these stories and, and when we see the Ten Commandments, it's like, you will have no false god before me. The Jews were big on not, not having idols to the point of where if you carved anything, you would be in trouble probably. Very strict about it, about idolatry. Yet they miss the forest for the trees, as do we. What are our idols? You know, there's a story in the Old Testament when... Um, that just came to mind, so I might butcher it a little bit. But the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, from the Jews in war. And they took the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of their god, Dagon. There's some cool stories in the Old Testament. You know what happens in that temple? The big Dagon idol, whatever it looked like, I bet it looked like pretty creepy and cool fell over before the Ark of the Covenant in the night. 
And I think, does it happen even more than once? Yeah, they set it back up, falls over again. It's just God's, it breaks. Yeah. God's funny little sense of humor there. Not sure why I was telling that story. Oh, idolatry, thank you. We put these things up as gods in our life. And we worship them. God doesn't want other gods occupying his space. We don't call things gods today, but we worship things. We worship money. We worship power. We worship sexuality. We worship self a lot. I'm God, right? We've talked about that. We worship whatever we're addicted to. It's our God. It becomes the priority to us in our lives. God doesn't, that doesn't set well with God. And we talked about abomination of desolation. You know, people argue about what that really actually means or whether it was fulfilled or will be fulfilled. But the idea being that this thing that's so reprehensible to God and so counter God's design, that's offensive. So some people say that when the Romans offered sacrifices in the temple, that was it. I think the point is this, that when we have these abominable things, these things that are opposed to the nature of God, that we, that we allow to become our God, the result is desolation. Not the fruitfulness that comes with worshiping our God, but a desolation as we worship other gods and we allow other things into our lives. It's harder for us to see idols because they're invisible to us today. Just like back in the day before Jesus' coming, idols were actual idols. And the temple was actually a temple. And the sacrifices were actually ongoing sacrifices. And fast forward in today, and it's different. Our idols are invisible. The sacrifices, we, you know, we accept Jesus as our sacrifice. And even though that's an ongoing thing, it's not something we participate in in the natural very powerful stuff that God has done for us. If you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, if you are the place where true worship takes place, I want you to picture this. Picture Jesus coming into your temple and looking around like he did the temple. What would he see? What would he find in the temple in each one of us? Certainly he would see like his disciples did, the great value in you, in the temple, sees the magnificent potential. He would see a great capacity to serve the needs of his people, like the old temple did. But would he see people being taken advantage of? Would he see real worship happening or just the appearance of it? Would he find abominations, things that oppose him, things that have been allowed to set themselves up as gods in his temple? Would he find an idol that looks strikingly similar to you in there? A statue erected to yourself, asking himself, oh, is this the God of this temple? Is this the standard setter? Is this the one that brings justice? Is this the fair judge? (laughs) Is this the one who determines right and wrong? This idol called me? 
Jesus will bust out a whip if he has to, to drive these things from our lives. He's zealous for his temple. It's painful when God's trying to drive something from your life, isn't it? No, I want to hang on to that one. I, eh, can I just worship that on Tuesdays? But he wants to drive those things from our lives. He want, why? Because he's sweeping the leaven out. He's cleansing the temple. He's eradicating those things that are opposed to him from our lives in his zeal for us. Sometimes it's painful, but we always have to remind ourselves, what is his motive? His motive is love. The Lord disciplines those he loves. And man, sometimes that hurts. It's for your own good, son. You ever say that to one of your kids? It's going to hurt you a lot more than it's going to hurt me. If we are our own God, then we have a tendency to decide that his justice and his methods are not fair. I wouldn't do that if I was God. That's not fair of God to do things that way. It's uncomfortable when we think of things like eternity and judgment or the way life turns out sometimes. Wait a minute, God, that's not fair. I've decided that you're not fair, God. It's not an uncommon verdict in humanistic thinking, but again, keep in mind, his motive is love. Because of love, he disciplines, and because of love, he laid down his life. Just a few days later, just a few days after the cleansing of that temple, He's the ultimate sacrifice for the people that he loves. He did that. I'm going to have a prayer team right up over here to my left. If I asked you to be on that prayer team, would you come up, please? I have a last question for you. Who really is the God of your soul? Who really is the God of your temple? Jesus desires to be the Lord of your life. He desires to be the one that occupies that space, the one who is worshipped, not just as an occasional visitor, but as the king of that space. And not only a king, but a friend. We have a God that relates to us. If you've never really made Jesus the king of your life, or perhaps you did and he just hasn't been on the throne for a while, then don't let today pass without making that different. Making that change. A change that cleanses us, like Jesus cleansed the temple. It forgives our sins. It transforms our lives. When we invite him to be the king, he brings healing. He brings forgiveness. He brings direction and purpose. He's a transforming, loving, all-powerful and relatable God. Not a lot of people can lay claim to that. This morning, when I, I'm going to close. But I'm going to encourage you, if you've not made him king in your life, or you've been running from your king for a long time, I've got people I trust up here to pray with you for that. If you want to give your life to Christ, if you'd like to recommit your life to Christ because you've been running for a long time, you feel like it's time for Jesus to come in and do some work. But don't leave here today without coming up and receiving prayer or at least visiting or asking questions, whatever you got to do. Don't leave 
Don't let today go by without making that change. It will change the course of your life. Lord, I ask you to move in power amongst us today. Lord, call those that are your own. Those you are rescuing, Lord, I pray that you would move in their hearts. Father, I pray, Lord, whether here or elsewhere in the city, Lord, that that gospel call would be heard. Father, we want to start to see people giving their lives to you on a more regular basis. Can we ask that? God, we want to start filling the nets. Lord, we want to start seeing captives set free, lives transformed, new destinies set for those that love you and those that choose to serve you. Father, we thank you that while sometimes we're maybe a little uncomfortable with the idea of you being jealous or zealous for us or cleaning house when you feel the need, Lord, we welcome that. You are the king over all kings. There is no God before you. Lord, forgive us for the little ones that we try and make such a big deal out of. Father, help us to set our sights on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and not to get distracted in all these other things of life that drag us down or drag our attention away from you. God, we were made for your purposes, and we know that our lives will not be fully fulfilled unless we use them to serve you and your purposes. Amen.